0: Well, friends, we are still in the book of Exodus, so our passage today can be found on page 43 of the Pew Bible, so if you are using the Pew Bibles, we are on page 43. Well, friends, we know that job interviews can be nerve-wracking. You know, to get the job, we have to talk about ourselves. You know, some of us like to talk about ourselves, but I, I suspect many of us don't really like to talk about ourselves especially to talk about ourselves in a way that impresses our prospective employer. You know, according to LinkedIn, uh, here are four things you can do to get hired. Four things you can do, right? So if you're having a job interview this week, you can write this down. Four things you can do to get hired. Number one, plan your first impression. Number two, sell your strengths. Number three, show enthusiasm for your job. Number four, tell a good story about your achievements and successes. So, four things you can do to get hired. Uh, But what if you don't want the job? Well, I suppose you could do the exact opposite. You can leave a bad first impression. You can talk about your weaknesses. Uh, You can show your reluctance or your lack of enthusiasm for the work. And then you can spend the time at the interview talking about how unsuitable you are for that particular job. You know the the idea of intentionally failing a job interview may sound funny and absurd to us, yet this is exactly what Moses does in our passage. You know, if you want a kind of somewhat funny title to, to this passage, you could call it How Not to Interview for a Job. You know, Moses' hesitation in these two chapters in Exodus is surprising. Because during the past 40 years, we've seen how God has been faithfully preparing Moses for ministry. And now, the time of action has arrived. And he appears to Moses in a burning bush, as we heard in Ollie's sermon last week. And God calls Moses to lead his people. And then we expect Moses to say, yes, send me. But he doesn't. Moses hesitates. And in, instead of saying yes to God immediately, he responds with a whole series of questions and objections. know, in fact, he begins with questions and he kind of ends with an objection or refusal. You know, last week we heard how God assures Moses of his presence. Right? He says to God in verse 12, I will be with you. And then God also reveals his power to Moses, right? By revealing his name. He says, I am who I am. He is the sovereign, faithful, covenant-keeping God, the Creator and Redeemer, and all that is kind of invested in that name, I am who I am. But despite receiving Moses, or rather, despite receiving God's glorious revelation, Moses isn't persuaded. You know, his slowness to obey God's call shows that Moses isn't the hero of the Exodus, God is the hero of the Exodus, and He works through frail, fearful, flawed people to accomplish His plan. I think if we, if we see ourselves in this story, maybe we can relate to Moses. We can relate to his reluctance, because let's be honest, how many of us always want to serve God? How many of us always want to to serve God. You know, when we don't want to serve God, you know, we often come up with reasons or excuses why we're not the right one for the job. And like Moses, you know, our hesitation stems from a wrong perspective of ourselves, a wrong perspective of God. You know, oftentimes when we don't want to serve God, what we see is our lack of ability, we see our weaknesses, we, we see our failures, we see our challenges, uh, we, we don't think it's the right time, we see our circumstances, and then we lose sight of the greatness of God. So the remedy is to see God for who He truly is. Look, to look at ourselves less, but to see God for who He truly is. You know, what we need is big God theology, right? you know, to ask ourselves, how, how big is the God whom we worship? How big is the God whom we worship? Is, is our theology, is our understanding of God, do we see Him as a big God? Or do we see ourselves as, or, or rather, do we see our problems as bigger? So This is what the passage is about, a big God. And here's the big idea. God sanctifies His insufficient servant whom He sends. God sanctifies His insufficient servant whom He sends. And this God sanctifies us to serve Him. So five points as we work through a fairly long passage today. Number one, so when we doubt, remember God's promises to save. When we fear, consider God's power. When we are weak, know that God is for us. When we disobey, look to God's mercy. And when we are faithful, God grants fruit. So number one, When we doubt, remember God's saving promises. Let me read for us from verse 15 to 22 in chapter 3. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise you, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbour and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewellery and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So we pick up the conversation between Moses and God in verse 15, and I think just first, you know, first off, it's surprising that God is even having a conversation with Moses. You know, I'm a parent of two boys, so you know, in my ideal world, When I tell my sons to do something, they'll do it. No end of conversation, right? If I give them an instruction, they'll follow it. There's no conversation. It's just, yes, dad, you're the best dad ever. I'll do exactly what you say. You know, surely God has even more right to expect this of us, to expect this of Moses. And and yet, I I think his conversation with Moses in chapters 3 and 4 shows his patience and compassion, I think he's a more compassionate father than I am. He's a more patient father than I am. And he deals tenderly with us because he knows our frame, he knows our weakness. You know, unlike Pharaoh, God isn't a harsh taskmaster who insists that we make bricks without straw. You know, he doesn't tell us to suck it up. I, I wonder, do we serve God grudgingly because we think that he's like a bad boss? You know, and we're just checking that box as we serve him. perhaps we will serve Him more gladly if we know Him as the loving Father He truly is. To Moses' question about who God is, God replies, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when we doubt Remember who God is. God is the great I am. He is who he is. What he causes to be, shall be. He does not depend on anyone or anything. He is over all things, and he is faithful in all things. And you know, if you compare verse 14 and 15, we see that the great I am in verse 14 is Yahweh in verse 15. This Yahweh graciously establishes and keeps his covenant with his people. This is God's personal name revealed to Moses. You know, the the Israelites so revered revered God's name, Yahweh, that they didn't dare speak it. So instead, they substituted the title, the Lord, every time that that name appeared in Scripture. So instead of saying Yahweh, they would substitute it with the Lord. You know, that's why our English Bibles reflect this. Right, you, you see the all-caps the, the all law, that, that's actually that covenantal name Yahweh that's being used in the passage. And, and, and God is making the point to Moses that Yahweh is the same God of the patriarchs, the same God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, the same God who promised Abraham a people, a land, and a bless, and blessing. You know, if you look back in Genesis 15, God cut a covenant with Abraham, promising to deliver Abraham's descendants out of slavery with great possessions, Genesis 15. And more than 400 years have passed since God had made those promises, and and yet God has not forgotten His promise. And His Word is sure because He says it is founded upon His everlasting name, His eternal name. Which signifies his unchanging character. Now, that's how we know that we can trust him. It does not change. And when we doubt, remember God's saving promises. You know, God is faithful to keep his word. Now I'm not sure whether you, you saw this as I read verses 17 to 21. You notice the number of I will statements in these verses. You know, for example, in verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Verse 21, I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. I will, I will, I will. You know, this is the God whom we worship, beloved. In times of doubt, remember He will. He will keep His word. And the Lord hears the cries of his people. He remembers his covenant with us. He sees, he knows, as we heard in chapter 2. He is the personal God who does not wait for us to make the first move. That's the amazing thing. Remember, he appears to Moses in a burning bush. Moses did not seek him out. He makes the initiative, he draws near to save now, in asking who am I, you know, Moses questioned his ability. You know, maybe we too wrestle with doubt, self-doubt. and we, we, we know that living faithfully in a fallen world is hard. You know, think about your past week. Did you experience any discouragement? Did you experience any disappointments, any failures? You know, living in a fallen world is hard. You know, we struggle with suffering and sin both our own as well as that of others you know who are we who are we to make it to the end you know it's interesting when, when god responds to moses question he doesn't highlight moses strengths to reassure him you know, he doesn't talk about moses outstanding education in egypt doesn't talk about moses credentials his strengths his qualifications doesn't ask Moses for his resume. No, he he talks about God says, look at me, right? God focuses on him, not Moses. Because our confidence comes from looking away from ourselves and looking to God who is with us. God assures Moses that the elders of Israel will listen to him. Why? Not because of Moses, but because God has promised and his word cannot fail. So Moses and Israel's elders are to ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go to worship God. But Pharaoh will refuse. Now how does God know this? It's because God is in control of everything that happens, including over how Pharaoh responds. And he doesn't want Moses to be caught unawares by the opposition that he is about to face. you notice how God is preparing Moses for rejection. You say these things to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will say no. I think it's similar to how Jesus prepares His disciples to face hostility in this fallen world. But the sovereign God is also able to give the Israelites favour with the Egyptians. He he promises Moses that the Israelites will not leave empty-handed, but they will plunder the Egyptians. They will come out with Egypt's treasure, you know, God is able to move the hearts of the Egyptians to willingly give their wealth to their former slaves. You know, it's, about, you know, it's helpful to look at these verses and not think that Israelites are not stealing from their employers, right? This is not, this is not running away with your employer's wealth, no. They are asking their, you know, their former masters for treasure and their former masters are happily giving it to them. Why? Because God is able to move in the hearts of the Egyptians to do so. You know, see God's goodness in providing for His people. You, know, you can think about this as many, many years of back pay that they owe the Israelites for their slavery. Right? This is back pay. So that they're going with actually what they deserve for all the years of work that they've put in for Egypt. In fact, you look at what God is giving to His people through the Egyptians, and, and this very same treasure will be used for the building of the tabernacle. So, God is providing for His people, God is providing for how they will even worship Him in the building of the tabernacle. And God is faithful to save. So, when we doubt, remember that salvation does not depend on us. Remember that it's God's promises that are fulfilled. That's why He is strong to save. And his promises are finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes as the great I am, come in the flesh. For example, he says in John's Gospel in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Will we trust him when we doubt? Number two, when we fear, consider God's power. Let me read from chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, I think it's quite remarkable that even after all that God has said in chapter 3, Moses is still not persuaded. He's not convinced He's afraid the people will not listen since they rejected him 40 years ago. Maybe, maybe Moses kind of remembered that incident 40 years ago when he killed the Egyptian and then he was ratted out and he had to run away. And, and Moses' fears lead him to even contradict God. Remember God said to Moses, they will listen to you? And verse 1, Moses says, they will not listen to me. <laughs> right? it, it's a flat contradiction of what God has already spoken to him. And I wonder if our fears lead us to disbelieve God. God's Word says something and we say, no, I don't think so. For example, we we hesitate to serve God because we are preoccupied with our worries, our anxieties. We do all our mental calculations. We're so concerned with the what-ifs that we forget who God is. Now, once more, God speaks patiently with His fearful servant. And, and he very graciously provides Moses with a tangible token of his presence, uh, his staff. I, I'm, I'm thinking God didn't have to do that, but you know, see how God graciously condescends to meet us where we are. He's compassionate because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He, he sees the frailty of our faith, and He helps us. And having received grace from God ourselves, I think we ought also to be patient and gentle with one another, especially those who struggle in the faith. You know, God gives Moses three signs to prove to skeptical Israelites that He truly is God's prophet. You know, the first sign involves transforming Moses' staff into a serpent. You know, and Moses is totally terrified, right? He sees the serpent and he runs away. You know, but God encourages him in a very tangible object lesson to not fear. You know, if, if you want to pick up a snake, where would you hold on to the snake? The head, right? But you notice Moses picks it up by the tail. And why, does he, why does God tell him to do that? Why, why pick it up from the tail? I think God is underscoring to Moses that he truly It's a God to be trusted. He's a God who has power, therefore you need not fear. You can do something that is so frightening, but you need not fear. God encourages him to not fear and to grab it by the tail, and then sure enough, it turns back into a staff. The second sign involves Moses' hand becoming leprous when he puts it inside his cloak. He takes it out. And then when he puts his his hand back inside his cloak again and takes it out again, it is miraculously restored. The third sign sort of foreshadows the first judgment on Egypt, the water turning to blood. The the third sign involves turning the water from the Nile into blood. You know, these, these signs are not random or arbitrary. If you think about these signs, these signs say certain things about God. The, the first sign on the, the staff turning into a serpent and Moses kind of grabbing it and it turns back into a staff, I think that shows God's power over evil. Right? The, the serpent being representative of evil. And Moses, by grabbing the staff, shows that he, you know, through God's power, he need not fear, not even Pharaoh. The, the second sign, I think, represents God's power over sickness, his ability to heal and to restore the, the, the third sign uh, concerning the water of the Nile, you know, the, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as the source of life. You know, blood, we know, is the symbol of death. Right? So what, what is God saying in the third sign? That He is powerful, that He's sovereign even over life and death. So you put all these signs together, God is sovereign, He's powerful over evil, He's the God who heals, who restores, and He's sovereign over life and death itself. I think the application for us is pretty obvious, right? Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death by dying on a cross and rising from the grave. So we need not fear. We need not fear because we have an all-victorious Savior who conquered the grave, As Psalm 21 puts it to us, well, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So, beloved, we, we need to look at ourselves less. We need to look to the one who is all powerful, the one who has died and risen from the grave. He is the one to whom we look when we are fearful. Number three, when we are weak, know that God is for us. Let me read from verses 10 to 23 in chapter 4. Verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servants, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, "Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You know, after all this, Moses is still not persuaded, and in fact, his questions become more like excuses, right? He says in verse uh, 10, I am not eloquent, I am slow of speech and of tongue. You know, when we don't want to serve God, you know, but maybe we give excuses about our lack of ability, or maybe lack of time, lack of energy, and so on. You know, but, but even if what Moses says of himself is true, you know, even if we give Moses the benefit of the doubt, I, I think what he says still misses the point. Moses should trust God rather than his own natural ability. And we commonly identify pride as talking big about ourselves, but but there's a a more subtle form of pride that talks ourselves down. Maybe being in an Asian context, we're familiar with this, right? The idea of being sort of modest about ourselves. We, We may appear humble, but if you think about it, we're still focusing on ourselves, not on God. You know, that, that can be a form of pride as well when we talk ourselves down and we don't put ourselves forward to serve God. True humility, in contrast, confesses that God is able though we are unable. True humility is not only thinking of ourselves less but also making much of God. That's true humility, is to make much of God and to see ourselves in the light of Him. You know, so, when we are weak, we need to know that God is for us. And re- God reminds Moses of this rather obvious but profound truth. You know, he says to Moses in verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? So, go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You know, do we, do we ever wrestle with, you know, do we ever struggle to with our words, you know, we're fearful to evangelize because we don't know what to say. Well, this is a great verse to remember. Who has made man's mouth? God will teach us what we shall speak. You know, beloved, may, may we boldly speak God's truth to others, trusting God to be with our mouths. You know, may, may this verse encourage us in our evangelism. May this verse give us courage to, to speak truth to one another, to build one another up in the faith. Yes, I don't know what to say, but God is able to help me with the words that I need to say to my brother and sister. And I depend on Him. I think we pray that God will be with our mouths as we speak for Him. Because God enables us to serve Him. As we heard from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, God is the one who gives spiritual gifts to the church for every Christian to build up the church. So don't focus on our limitations. Let's depend on God, whose divine power has granted us all things that we need for life and godliness. And and He delights to work through our weakness for His glory. And I don't think He enjoys, I don't think God works through those who think that they are strong, but He works through those who are weak so that His power is made perfect in our weakness. God uses jars of clay like us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Still, Moses is not convinced, and like the prophet Jonah, he tries to run away from God's call. He says in verse 13, hey, send someone else. It's not for me. God has been long-suffering with Moses. He's reasoned with Moses throughout these verses but even his patience has limits. Verse 14 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And at this point, maybe we expect God to break out in judgment against Moses, right? Because his anger has been kindled against Moses. And yet, instead of punishing Moses, God helps him. (laughs) Right? God provides Aaron, his brother, to help him to be be Moses' spokesman. God will speak to Moses and then Moses will speak to Aaron who will convey the message to the Israelites. Aaron will speak to the people. And God even reminds Moses, hey, take your (laughs) staff. Take your staff because that is a symbol of my presence with you. And God assures Moses that his life is no longer under threat since those who wanted to kill him have already died verse 19. You, know, you, you see God assuring Moses again and again. You know, God has indeed been patiently shaping Moses for service. You know, and, and finally, with so many assurances in place, Moses decides to go. Right? The reluctant prophet finally obeys God's call. He obtains his father-in-law Jethro's blessing and he leaves with his wife and his sons. And that's significant because that shows that Moses doesn't intend to go back to Midian. If he did, he would leave his wife and sons behind. But Moses packs his bags, takes his whole family, and embarks on a one-way trip away from Midian because he intends now to settle with the Israelites back in Egypt and then where God will subsequently lead them. And God again assures Moses that he will work his sovereign will for the good of his people. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You know, this is the first in a series of statements throughout Exodus chapters 4 to 14 about Pharaoh's heart. You know, in some of these verses, like like the one here in verse 21, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In other verses, we read about how Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So which is it? Who's hardening whose heart? You know, if if we put all these verses together, I think it reveals two key truths about what's going on in Exodus with Pharaoh's heart. First, we, we see how God is sovereign. He is in control even over Pharaoh's heart. Right, we would think that those in power, like the king of Egypt, will have the ability to self-determine, but no. I think God shows his sovereignty even over the king of Egypt's heart. And it reminds, reminds us of the verse in Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Pharaoh's resistance doesn't derail God's plan. In fact, this is how God will show His power and glory, by stretching out His hand and striking Egypt with all the wonders He will do in it. So God is sovereign, even over Pharaoh's heart. The second key truth is that Pharaoh is also responsible for his unbelief. God will hold Pharaoh accountable for hardening his heart. So God is not hardening a heart that would otherwise be soft. He is simply giving Pharaoh over to his sinful stubbornness. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. God lets Pharaoh harden his heart. And God is sovereign over all of that. Nothing is happening outside of his control. Now friends, I think this is a, it's a sober, sober warning for us. Right? As it says in Psalm 95, today, If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to Him, friends. Turn to Him without delay. This God delights to show us grace and mercy. Israel is God's firstborn son, verse 22. And God will take Israel to be His people, and he will be their God. Now, therefore, Pharaoh must let Israel go because God's son must serve God. Exodus is the story of how God frees his son from slavery to serve him. God's people are redeemed for worship, to worship their father, who loves them, who saves them. And if Pharaoh refuses, God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. We see this happening in Exodus 12, with the death of Egypt's firstborn sons, and in how that compels Pharaoh to finally let Israel go. It sort of breaks Pharaoh's resolve and resistance. I think there are many hints of the gospel that we see in these verses. In in the gospel, the death of a son saves many sons and daughters. You know, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We, we deserve to die for our sins. But God, in His amazing grace and love, did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for undeserving sinners like us. Jesus is God's firstborn Son, so to speak. Jesus is God's beloved Son. And God gave His Son so that His Son would die to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we can be forgiven if we trust in Him. And Jesus rose from the dead that we might live if we believe in Him. If if we need to know that God is for us, we simply look to the Son and to believe in God's Son. Number four, when we disobey, look to God's mercy. Let me read, from verses 24 to 26. Ah, It's an interesting verses that you may be puzzling about in Exodus. At the lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, what's going on in these verses? Right. I think the, the, the first point we should note, remember God has said to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. Well, now, even Moses' son needs to be delivered from death. God is threatening to kill Moses' firstborn son. The, the hymn in verse 24, now, now this is not an easy passage to, to interpret, but I see the hymn in verse 24 as probably referring to Gershom, Moses' firstborn son. So why does the Lord want to kill Gershom? Basically because Gershom was uncircumcised. Now perhaps because he was born uh, outside of God's covenant community, he was in Midian, he was born in Midian, maybe because he was far away, Moses forgot or neglected to circumcise his son, You know, and and God had commanded Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. And and God had warned in Genesis that any uncircumcised male would be cut off from God's people. Basically, Moses disobeys God. You hear you you have an example of Moses' sin. He, He did not listen to God's command to circumcise his son. And this put Gershom's life in danger of divine judgment. I think, again, you you see, God is compassionate, but He's also just. He's also righteous. And even His chosen servant Moses must face the consequences when he disobeys. Judgment begins at the household of God. Now, beloved, let's keep a close watch on our lives, especially those of us in positions of responsibility and leadership. I'm speaking to myself, really. In this, in this time. You know, God desires our obedience. You know, men, I speak particularly to the men, those of us who are husbands and fathers, let's not neglect the spiritual well-being of our families. Right? God, God wanted Moses to do big things, right? But before that, Moses needed to put his own household in order. Right? Do we, have we done that in our own families? Yes, serve God in the church, Serve God outside, but have we put our own households in order? Have we cared for the spiritual well-being of our families, of our wife, of our sons, of our daughters? I think that's an obvious application here for those of us who are husbands and fathers. God desires our obedience, and serving God begins in the home. The home is a place for ministry. It's not I do ministry and then my mom, I also have stuff to do at home. But no, the home is a place of ministry. And we need to know that. But, but I think in, in sort of threatening to kill Gershom, God shows mercy. And, and that stay of execution allows Moses' wife, Zipporah, to circumcise her son. Zipporah steps up. You know, once more, you see salvation happening in surprising ways. You remember in our earlier chapters, God saved his people through women the Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother and sister. Here, God again works through a woman to save Zipporah. You know, sisters in Christ, you have a vital role in helping your brothers in Christ trust and obey God, whether it's your husband, a friend, or a fellow member of this local church. You know we, we can give thanks to God for godly women like Zipporah who stepped up to obey when her husband failed to do so. Husbands, do we allow our wives to step up in that way? Do we allow our wives, do we humble ourselves and allow our wives to speak truth to us even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it points out our sin? Do we allow our wives to do that for us? Because they are God's gift to us for our spiritual good. those of us who are single, who desire marriage, what are you looking for in a marriage partner? Will this person help you to obey God? Will this person step up and help you to obey God? So after circumcising her son, Zipporah touches him with the blooded foreskin. Moses is a bridegroom of blood because he and his sons belong to God through the blood of circumcision. You know, I think it's interesting, you know, that word touch, in verse 25, it's the same one used to describe the application of the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, verse 22. Right? The instruction given to the Israelites is this take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. Touch. Zipporah's circumcision of Gershom is a preview of the Passover. Moses' firstborn son is saved from death because he's touched by the shedding of blood. Israel, God's firstborn son, is also saved from judgment because their homes are touched by the blood of the Passover lamb. I think the gospel application is very obvious here at this point. Thanks to God's work in his life, Moses goes from doubt and disobedience to trust and commitment to the Lord. Moses was a sinner, saved by grace. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The only way that we can be saved is through our bridegroom of blood, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us. Circumcision points to the cross where Jesus was cut off from God that we might be forgiven. Therefore, look to Jesus for mercy when we disobey. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from sin and qualify us to serve God. Finally, when we are faithful, God grants fruit. Let's look at verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Moses, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Or the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. You know, though Moses struggled, you know, you see God continuing to work out his plan and he provides Aaron to be his co-worker, right? Our our flaws and faults are God's opportunity to display his wisdom and power through us. He uses broken vessels to accomplish his plan. And God sanctifies his insufficient servant whom he sends. After his initial reluctance, Moses faithfully fulfills God's calling you know, beloved, have we said no to God's calling? It's not too late to stop running and to turn back to God. Moses speaks all the words of the Lord to Aaron, who then speaks the same words to the elders of Israel. You know, faithfulness simply means speaking all of God's words. No more, no less. You know, at the end of Genesis, Joseph had said to the brothers, to his brothers, God will surely visit you And that same language is used here in our text. The Lord visited the people of Israel. Being faithful means trusting the faithful God to grant fruit. And he will do what he says he will do. God had told Moses that the elders would listen to him. And sure enough, the people believed, verse 31. God grants fruit. The people hear and believe the word of God. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the goal of the exodus. He rede- God redeems a people for worship. And I think we see, this own, we see this fruit in our own lives. Having heard and believed the gospel, we worship God. We bow our heads before Him. So what do we do when we don't want to serve God? We look not only to Moses, but to a greater servant of the Lord. Jesus came to do His Father's will, not His own, and He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. And thanks to Jesus' perfect obedience, our imperfect service is now rendered acceptable to God. And Jesus fulfills God's saving promises. He is God for us. He is God with us. And he reveals God's power and mercy to us, supremely at the cross and the resurrection. So beloved, let's faithfully serve God, because we have first been graciously served by his son, his firstborn son, our great saviour. Let's pray together.